You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Well, I don't know if you're like me and wondering at times why there are two chapters in the Gospel of Luke that talk about Jesus' birth And then it fast forwards to when he's 12, and then all of a sudden chapter 3 opens and it goes to an event when he's 30. We think about the most significant person in the history of the world, Jesus Christ, and it goes birth very quickly when he's 12, and then whoop to 30. And if you're like me, you're going, my guess is Jesus did some things that would be pretty remarkable between 12 and 30 that I would have liked to have seen. I don't know what they are. I would have loved to have seen Jesus as a teenager. I would have loved to have seen uh, Jesus as a child and growing up and go, really, the perfect one? He was perfectly obedient to his parents? This is amazing. Like, do you think there's any fruit we could get by watching the life of Jesus? In other ways, it's not just revealed in the Bible. And and for me, I, I have to get over it a little bit because we say all the time, the Bible tells us what we need to know, not everything that we want to know. And sometimes, if I'm not careful, what I'll start doing is I'll start getting frustrated with... I'll get upset and say, why isn't there more here that we might understand instead of being grateful that God saw fit to preserve the story of Jesus Christ in written form that we might know him instead of being upset to just be grateful for what we do have. And this is, um, this is John the Baptist. You heard that come up. John the Baptist is out baptizing people. Um, and uh, he, he starts out in the beginning of chapter three, he sets it in history. Remember, we're not hiding from this. This is, this is who was king. This is where he was king. This is the year. This is what's happening. He, it's as though Luke is saying, line this up in space in history, and you'll see that this is true. He places it in the context of Old Testament prophecy. A little bit later, he's saying, this is the one. This is John the Baptist, the one who is pointing to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is coming. And John's message is that justice and judgment and grace are coming through Christ. That justice and judgment are coming. Now, this is tricky in our church today, and I'm saying like global church, or at least American church, because there was a generation that spoke so much about the judgment 
um, the justice, the wrath of God, spoke so much about sin that you might wonder, okay, where's the grace in all this? And so what's happened, what we're seeing in the church is a swing perhaps the other way to talk so much about the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God that you might say, well, where's the justice and the judgment and the, 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 the sin part of this? And so Christians need to be balanced in how we understand that. And the way John says it, I think is perfect because there's a word that sums up how we can be right in that center, which is repent. Repentance. Repentance says there's a standard that we've missed and also in the same breath, you can't repent to nothing, which is you know, a lot of people do, just, just forgive myself or just try and get over it. And it's not just repent and turn and change into nothing, it's turn to Jesus and even in your sin, you turn to Christ and he's there with open arms to offer his forgiveness and mercy and grace. That's what John is proclaiming. And he says the way you demonstrate that is by bearing fruit. And this makes actually perfect sense. Imagine if today I said, I'm going to my house afterwards, I'm gonna plant an apple tree at my house. And then you move away or something and then you come back 20 years later and you go, Jim, I remember 20 years ago when I was here, you said that you were planting an apple tree. It's apple season, whatever that is. And, we're, and so it seems appropriate. What if we go to your house? I would just be curious to see how that apple tree has done in the last 20 years. And I go, no problem. And after the service, we go over to, our, we go over to the house and I go, uh, this here's the apple tree. And you look at it and you remarkably notice that there are exactly zero apples in the tree. And you go, I thought this was an apple tree. And I go, well, this kind of apple tree doesn't produce apples. You would say, quit calling it an apple tree then. Just call it a tree. You planted a tree, that's what you did. Christian bears Christian fruit. That's what we do. We live differently. We, we, we live for Jesus Christ. Our life is different as a result of what he has done. And that's what John is calling them to do. The question I'd ask is, um, if you think about the fruit in your life, the good things that come out of your life, it tells us a little bit about what we worship. If we look at our life, and not, not all the time, but let, let's say that you go, my, everything about my kid's life is immaculate. I've got them. They are the most moral. They're the most successful. They're the most, you know, whatever it is. It could be that you're just, just a fantastic parent, and I need to sit with you and take notes. It could be that your kids are an idol that you're worshiping, and so you're bearing fruit in this area, and the reality is maybe your own spiritual life is withering away. Or um, I'm raising kids that are great and academics, but we're not even talking about the Lord. Um, I'm not even bringing that up. I don't really care about their spiritual development. Then what do, what do we say? The fruit we're bearing is over here, and we bear Christian fruit. We're changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says what he's doing, and it talks about this whole stuff with the winnowing fork. It's, um, I'll give you an example from my house. So right now at our house, we have, I'd like to call it a flower bed, but to be honest, it is a bed of rocks and weeds right out in front of my house. And the rocks are just pouring over everywhere. If you drive by, when you drive by, you can see there's rocks I've just pulled out and they're on the sidewalk. So I looked and went, I'm sure I can make this look better than this. I don't do landscaping. I have pulled all these rocks back because there's just tons of those pine needles in there and leaves and all sorts of stuff. And so I've pulled them all back. My wife, as I was doing this, came out and asked, you know, a pretty ridiculous question as I'm pulling these rocks and raking and digging. She said, do you know what you're doing? 
I said, I do not know what I'm doing. But I know how to Google and YouTube things, and so I'm trying to figure it out. And um, <clears throat> I've got all these rocks, and it was taking forever to get the rocks and to kind of move them to this, you know, move them and then get the rake out the, the needles and the leaves and all that. And so the, she walked out as I was doing this. So I, I was getting some in the shovel, and there's a big gust of wind. And so I thought, I have an idea. And so I just flung the rocks in the air, very safe, no safety goggles, very safe, chunking them up in the air. And what happened? The rocks went clunk, 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 clunk on the ground. And the wind went and blew some of the leaves off. Now, it was ironic because it was blowing right back towards the place that I had just taken it from, but I was still proud of my little thing that I had concocted. Now, what they used to do, this idea of a winnowing fork, or if you've seen the threshing floor, they would get this grain, and instead of taking everything and peeling all the husks off it like this, a lot of times they would get it, they would put it, uh, they would put it on the ground, and they would actually do that kind of thing. They uh, They would hit it, And then they would get it and toss it up in the air. And then the husks that were lighter would go away. And then the good grain would fall to the ground. And then they would get a lot of the work done. And then they would come in with a fork and they would fine tune it and keep the grain and get rid of the stuff that they didn't want. That's the illustration that John is using of saying Jesus is coming in and there is division. There is separation. There is some that are bearing fruit and they are following him and there are some that are not. And he's just called out the Pharisees, if you recall, if you were here last week. I know many of you weren't. But the Pharisees walked up and he says, you brood of vipers. He says, what are you doing? You're going through the motions. There's no real heart transformation, no real heart change. And so he's saying what Christ is gonna do is there's going to be this division and there's gonna be those that bear fruit and those that don't. And you can fool people around you, but you can't fool Christ. That's what he's saying. Now, the question would be, why wouldn't we just bear fruit? Because internally, we all hate hypocrites or hypocrisy, I should say. We hate hypocrisy. When somebody says, I believe this, and then they don't live like it, there's something in us that just goes, not cool. And and sometimes that's Christians as well. We follow Christ, but sometimes don't live like it, and why not? And I think the answer is um, an understanding that Christ is king. It's something that we sometimes miss. Christ is king. Look at what he says. Now, verse he talks in verse 18, with many other exhortations, he, that's John the Baptist, preached the, the euangelion, the gospel, the good news to the people. Then it says, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, meaning he did one more bad thing, that he locked up John, that's John the Baptist, in prison. All right, let me show you a couple maps. Here's the first one. Is, um, this is uh, Herod the Great's reign. And let me explain just a minute Herod the Great, and then I'll show you a second map in just a moment. Uh, Herod the Great was the king when Christ was born. And this is his, his, his territory that he reigned over. The Jews lived here. And so if you remember, Rome gave him the title, formally, the king of the Jews, because he was... Rome's leader over where the Jews lived. And so the irony in the, in the birth story is you have Herod the Great as king of the Jews, and then you have the real king of the Jews being born right under his nose. So that's the area that he, that he reigned. He was not a good guy. Uh, he um, had huge building projects. He expanded his kingdom quite a bit. And when he died, he gave several commands that he wanted fulfilled. <clears throat> One was he wanted some of his relatives uh, executed. One, was, especially when his son was top of the list. 
One was um, when he died, he worried that nobody was going to mourn him. And so he had imprisoned some Jewish elders and he said, uh, when I die, they need to be killed because then people will be walking down the streets in mourning and people will think they're mourning the death of Herod the Great. This guy was messed up. And the other thing that he did is he said he didn't think any of his three sons could adequately rule this entire kingdom. And so he said, this is one Rome granted him, he said, I think you should take the kingdom that I've built and you should split it into multiple kingdoms. So here's that picture right there. We'll put them side by side. There we go. Ignore the Decapolis over here. Those are just 10 extra cities. But you can see the the big green on this side. Apologies for anybody listening on the podcast and can't see. Um, The green on this side over here. And then on this side, you can see there's the big chunk of green, but then there's some other pieces there. What they did is they took Herod's kingdom and they split it into sort of fourths and they gave one of his sons a fourth, another one of his sons a fourth, and then they gave another one of his sons two fourths of the kingdoms, of the kingdom. So they split it. So that's where you get this idea of a tetrarchy, meaning one fourth. And so they take this big kingdom and they split it into fourths. So when it says Herod the Tetrarch, here's where it gets confusing. There's Herod the Great, and now we're not going to talk about him anymore. There's one of his sons, Herod, okay? And it's the Tetrarch. He ruled one of these four chunks of land. That's who it's talking about. Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, by John the Baptist, for Herodias. Herod, Herod Antipas is his name, Herod saw uh, someone named Herodias who was married to his stepbrother and said, I like her, even though he was already married. And so um, he went and uh, worked it out where he took his stepbrother's wife for his own. And John the Baptist said, what are you doing? Her name was Herodias. And so he went to Herod Antipas and said, what are you, what, what are you, you can't do that. You're, you're a leader, this you know, called him out for his immoral behavior. And so Herod decided to just lock John up in prison. Sin does that sometimes, doesn't it? When we're in error and someone calls us out on it, oh, I'll just jump in a little bit deep. I'm gonna double down on my rebellion. That's exactly what he did. He put, one of the other reasons he put him in uh, prison was there's a historian, Josephus, and he tells us very specifically that King Herod didn't like John the Baptist getting all this press. He was getting very popular and he had followers. So Josephus says, Herod, who feared lest the great influence John the Baptist had over the people, might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise thought it best by putting him to death, which is what's going to happen later, to prevent any mischief he might cause. He did not like that John the Baptist called him out, and he's also looking and seeing people are following John the Baptist so fervently, this gospel message, this new message of Jesus Christ, the real king of the Jews, he says, this isn't gonna go well, let's put him in prison. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, by John the Baptist, for Herodias, his brother's wife, um, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. Here's something that I note from this text. John the Baptist is mentioned in in all the Gospels. um, But every so often, you feel like um, they should talk more about him. 
Like he, he's predicted from the Old Testament. He is the one that is going to do something that from you know, centuries ago had been predicted. He got to baptize Jesus. He got to talk to Jesus. Imagine this little moment that he would have had with Jesus. It's recorded in another gospel about why are you getting baptized? You should baptize me. I shouldn't baptize you. Like I want to know more about him. And then you look at this and it basically just says he locked up John in prison. And we're going, wait a second. What happened to John? Why does Luke just record all this about a little bit about Jesus and he gets to this baptism and then he just goes, they locked up John in prison and sort of leaves us hanging until a little bit later on. And I think the answer is very simply that John is not the hero of the story, that Jesus is. This is not a story about John the Baptist. This is a story about Jesus Christ. And in fact, the main thing that I hope you take home from today is quite simply this, that John the Baptist is not the point of the story. The King Jesus Christ is. And you and I are not the point of our story. As much as our culture likes to say we are and the world revolves around us, that Jesus Christ is the king of kings. He is the point of your story and of my story. And the gospel message does not work if there's two kings in it. You need one. And it is Jesus Christ, the king of kings and Lord of lords. And the good news is... um, We have a good king because we're really bad at being kings. We're bad at being in charge. You ever, parents, have you ever, um, have you ever, you know, what does a king have to do? Dole out punishment sometimes, right? Dole out justice. Have you ever um, doled out justice to a child and maybe flown off the handle and you realize like, whoo, their sin was this and I made them pay this because I was having a bad day at work? Anyone? I never have, I'm sure you sinners have, but I have not. But you get the point, right? Or there's times you go, I really should stop and say something to my kid, but you just kind of go, I just don't feel like it. I'm just tired. I just don't like, we're bad. We're bad at it. What about making really hard decisions? That's what kings have to do. Make really, really difficult global decisions. And yet we've become a generation of people pleasers, caring too much about politicking and what other people think about us or, or think about relationships. Like the king has to, has to give, um, has to set the example in terms of relationships. And then the reality is, I mean, how much does it take one little difference of opinion on something and the relationship that's been around for 10 years is now gone. We make bad, bad kings, but we have the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's good because he's the good, just judge. When um, the, the official cause of death for Hitler is suicide, um, I know there's rumors he escaped and stuff like that, but, but um, what I've understood is he's taken his life, he took his life to avoid judgment, to avoid a trial, to avoid justice. You and I can rest in the fact that when he took his own life, he didn't avoid his judgment, he expedited it. And he went and stood before the God of the universe. And we can go, that's, that's good. Like there should be a judge so evil doesn't go unpunished. And there's a better king than us, Jesus Christ. Look at what it says here. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. 
something very important in this text. There's a lot we could talk about and reference other gospels. I wanna show you one thing in particular. Um, <clears throat> we hold to something as Christians called the, the idea of the Trinity or the triune God, that God is Father, that God is Son, and that God is Spirit, that we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And one of the things we miss sometimes at the baptism of Jesus is that we can see a reference to all three. Look at it again. The people were baptized. Jesus had been baptized and was praying. The heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This idea of God, that we worship one God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, means that the God we worship is unique. It is different. This is not a call to just sort of being spiritual or just believing in some kind of higher power or maybe believing in something that's within you. The call of the Bible is a very specific, this is God and this is who he is and he has revealed himself in this way. One of my, um, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, which I'm gonna sound like such a nerd. My alarm, I, I've told you before, my alarm used to go off at um, 5.12 in the morning, referencing this Old Testament scripture. Now, I feel like I'm just so old that I just like, I'm up at four or something, but I don't need an alarm. But um, I used to go off at 5.12 because of 2 Kings 5.12. And there's a story there about a guy named Naaman. Naaman was a commander of the Syrian army, not, not the Israelites, and he had leprosy, and he needed to be cleansed from it, and he had tried everything in the world to get it done. He had gone to other nations. He had done anything. And then finally, he gets word that there might be somebody, Elisha, in Israel that might be able to guide him to healing. And so he says, okay, I'm desperate, and I'll do it. And he goes, and he... Uh, goes to meet with Elijah. Elijah actually sends a messenger out to him and doesn't meet with him personally. And he says, what you have to do is you have to go to the Jordan and you have to dip seven times under the water and then God will heal you. And Naaman doesn't understand because he goes, if it's just, you, you think I haven't tried bathing you think I haven't tried going and jumping in a lake and submersing myself? Like, you think I haven't tried that? And what he's saying is not that the water is going to cleanse you. What he's saying is if you expect the favor of God to heal you, what you need to do is you need to go to what's essentially the Israelites' water. And then you dip seven times, which was very important uh, in the Israelite culture that's acknowledging the perfection of God. Essentially what they're saying is, God is not just some genie that you just go, ah, I've got leprosy, I need to be healed. And he goes, ah, go ahead, but keep running from me. He's saying you turn towards God in repentance and you go and you kneel before him. This is the imagery. And Naaman says something. This is why it sounds so nerdy. This is the verse that came to mind for me. I hope I gave it to you. Did I give you the Second Kings verse? There we go. His response is, are not the Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. It's a weird verse to be an inspiring verse in one's life, isn't it? Are not the Abana and Farpar, the river of Damascus? You know what he's saying? I want the healing of God and they say, great, then you go to our river, our place, in our way, you worship our God, and he will show his favor on you. And he goes, no, thank you, but I'll be close enough. I'll go find some other water, and I'll dip in it. 
We've got good rivers over in our place where I'm from as well. And he turned and he went in a rage. This is our culture today. We bend the knee to the triune God of the Bible, Father, Son, Spirit. And what, what do we hear? I'll be spiritual. I'll, I'll just sort of worship God in my creation and in my invention. We worship the God of the Bible. He has revealed himself to us. People were baptized and Jesus had been baptized. He was praying. The heavens were open. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is essentially the ordination of Jesus. Sometimes we shorthand it to say, this is God the Father. Um, This isn't Jesus just became God the Son or anything like that. This is God the Father giving a public confirmation and saying, it's go time. Like from here, he goes, and then the last 22 chapters are gonna be showing the public ministry of Jesus Christ. His his traveling, his healing, his reaching out to the lost, the hurt, the let down, the dying on the cross, rising from the grave, making appearances after he is risen. This is the message that he's communicating. This is his ordination. This is his, the day he is being sent out. So we are not kings. Thank God that we have one. We have a king that is mind-blowingly worthy of worship. We become baptized into fellowship with him. We gladly bear fruit as followers of his. And when we mess up, we turn and there he is with open arms to welcome us back. Let me just give you very briefly a couple of ways to apply this. First of all, um, there's going to be people here, more than likely, that don't know what it means to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, to follow him. And maybe it's because you've heard some, some ugly things about Christians, and Christians believe this, and on this certain issue or whatever it is, that, that just sets me off, that makes me go the wrong way. Listen, first and foremost, I'm gonna encourage you and invite you to turn to the one that died on the cross and rose from the grave to pay the price for your sin, to begin walking in relationship with him and experience the forgiveness that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have people that would be glad to help walk you through that as well. Second thing is this, is I have a question that could, could sound snotty, and I don't mean it to sound snotty at all, but it could. I wanna ask a question about for those who have never been baptized before. Um, when Jesus was baptized, uh, in another gospel, John the Baptist is saying, wait, why am I baptizing you? You don't need to be baptized. And he says, Jesus says, it's right for all righteousness to be fulfilled, meaning I'm, I'm being obedient to what my father has called me to do. And so the way I understand it is so, and the way it's been understood by the church is this is what Christians do, that Jesus did it in obedience to the Father, and then we do it as well in obedience to the Father. And so here's the question, is if you're, th- if you're thinking, I have not been baptized, I have not been baptized because blank, fill in the blank. It could be because I'm not a Christian, because I don't know anything about baptism, it could be, I'm, I'm serious when I say this and I'm sensitive to it, people go, I believe in God, I've got this relationship, but to come up here, like I, I'm, such, I'm such an introvert, I don't wanna come up here. I understand. Some people have gone, I've been a Christian for so long, it's almost embarrassing to come up here because it's like admitting I didn't do it for all that, I should have done it. I get it. Here's what I wanna encourage you to do. Wherever you are, just fill in the blank honestly. It could be I have a ton of questions. I mean, there could be all sorts of reasons. 
but just fill in that blank honestly. And I would encourage you to just take that next step in that journey of understanding what is baptism and is there a way to do that in obedience to Christ um, that would bring glory to him. Third thing I'll say is check your fruit or really have a friend check it. This is always really good. Like if you wanna find out where are the places in my life where I put my effort, my time, my, like what do I get anxious about, all those kinds of things about the fruit in my life, kind of a, how am I doing? Like is, am I saying I'm an apple tree but I don't have any apples? Or am I actually living? Take a moment, just check your fruit. If you got a spouse, ask your spouse. Ask your kid. Never mind, you don't have to ask your kid. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Because if I say it, then I have to do it. So no, that's off the table. But all of us, the last thing I'd say is to go for the silver. Meaning we only need one king. And if there's a spot where you think you win the gold and you're the king, you're not. That there is a king. There was a, um, <clears throat> a soccer analyst. I don't know anything about soccer. And soccer is the most popular sport in the world. I know nobody that watches it. So I had no one I could ask this to. But there's an analyst named Kevin Keegan. And um, he was watching a team. And so pardon me if I get some of the stuff up. I believe it was World Cup. And there was an underdog team that made the tournament and started going and doing better and better and better. And it was amazing. They just kept winning. They get to the championship game. And they lost in the championship game but they were underdogs and just the fact they got in the tournament, just the fact that they got to, they kept beating all these people and then the fact that they got to the championship game was like a a huge, huge deal. And um, on air, he said, wow, look at this team. This is the second best team in the world and there is no higher praise than that. I can think of one. Maybe the guy's popping champagne across the way. Yeah, the team that won first place. But it works out nicely for us as Christians. I'll settle for second. It's the highest I'll go. Because my life is surrendered to Christ. The gospel doesn't work if we have two kings on the throne. You only need one king, and we have one.